cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Our discussion today is with Bill Lin, CEO of Leonardo DRS, one of the major defense contractors here in D.C. Bill is a former DOD comptroller and a former deputy secretary of defense. He created a new kind of partnership with the companies in the defense industrial base called the DIB program that gave unprecedented information sharing and insight to these companies and really helped build a new kind of partnership for this new domain. So Bill's remarks will be particularly insightful. In uh, December of 2008, I was having dinner with somebody from the NSC, and he got a message on his BlackBerry and jumped up and said, I have to go, I have to leave. And it was that the Russians had broken into uh, Central Command's uh, Cipernet. And you inherited that, uh, it became Buckshot Yankee. Um, what did you think when you arrived and got that one dumped on you? Well, it was, it was a wake-up call. Uh, it told us some things. We had thought that we had some things that were absolute protections. And there's still some of that now. I, I still see people think an air gap means that you're protected. I mean, an air gap is a nice, like a moat. It's a nice protection of your castle. Uh, but people can cross the moat and people can cross the air gap. They did in this case. And so I think what we realized that there was a new level of vulnerability uh, to, a, to a motivated actor. And how did that help you think about creating Cyber Command, moving along on Cyber Command? Well, I mean, that contributed to the, to the thought that cyber was new type of threat in that we were completely dependent on it now in, you know, in 2008, 2009 in terms of our military capabilities. So our vulnerability was high. Our skill level was equally high, actually. I mean, we, we were certainly the most, and still are, I would say, the most vulnerable and the most capable in, in the cyber world. What, what I didn't think we were doing was thinking about it in an organized way. We were working the pieces, we were working the eaches, but we hadn't thought about it as to, okay, how do, we, how do we organize our force to deal with both this vulnerability as well as the capabilities that emanate from it? And that was, I mean, the, the organizing principle that not, not just me, but that we came up with uh, was to treat cyber as that fifth domain. It's, it was, it's a domain of warfare, which is, I think, accepted now. At the time, it was relatively controversial. There was debates about, you know, does this militarize the internet? My reaction was pretty dismissive of that in the sense that I didn't think navies militarized the ocean. 
it was they were a necessary part if you wanted to defend the oceans and people, defend people your people still say that by the way militarized yeah i know yeah, i know right. I, less and less like that i think yeah. people uh, at some point the uh, there was a fairly active debate in the administration over that and and treating um, i wrote an article for foreign affairs which led with the idea that cyber had to be a domain of warfare and the idea wasn't to militarize the internet what it was was to organize DOD's approach because when DOD is, you know, a vast uh, organization, a lot of complexity, but uh, also a hierarchical and driven organization, if you do something like treat cyberspace as a domain, what happens is the, the whole enterprise develops doctrine, it develops structure, it develops training, it, it, it develops all of the tools that we need to be able to operate and defend that space, which I think is exactly what was needed. So the idea wasn't to militarize the internet. The idea was to organize DOD's response to what was, I think, a pretty significant, or still is a very significant line of threat. What was the thinking about uh, sticking Cyber Command under STRATCOM? Why not make an independent command from the start? You know, I think you can debate that, and obviously I, we're going to make it now. Uh, uh, it, I, the, I think there was some reaction to, one, how many commands do you want? And there was Congress was limiting, not inappropriately, but the, Congress is not interested in you proliferating commands loosely. So, and we were still in the early de days of, of organizing ourselves. Uh, um, we'd had a bad experience, and we're about to go through another one, uh, with Space Command. We'd set up a Space Command and it didn't really work very well. Uh, that, that note seems to have been forgotten. That that has forgotten. We'll see if, if yeah. we can uh, <laughs> yeah. do it differently uh, Maybe. this time. I don't know. But the uh, so I, I think that it was there were constraints on adding commands. I think it was important to get cyber command stood up. This was a, a the probably the fastest way to do it. And it was a step as it has been towards a unified command. I think it was always going to be a standalone command. It was it didn't logically fit under strategic command for a very long. Um, and it worked best when I think strategic command let it uh, have its autonomy. If STRATCOM tried to exercise day-to-day -day control from Omaha, it didn't go as well as it did when you had a little bit, a little bit more autonomy uh, at, at Fort Meade. And, you know, we can edit this. So if there's things you don't want to answer or you think later you don't want to, we'll take it out. Because I was going to ask you, how did you manage the politics among the chiefs in creating a new command? If I remember, there was a, a little bit of tension. I'm not even sure I remember enough about that. There was, it was both Gates and I, I think, were very committed to doing this. So there wasn't uh, – the Pentagon, if the senior leadership is very committed to an idea, there's not that much debate. And people, people didn't think it was such a terrible idea. I mean, there wasn't – people weren't throwing themselves on the tracks uh, to block this. So I, do, I, don't, I don't remember there being uh, an enormous amount of, of consternation about this. One I'm sure the, there were some concerns. There were some, according to Keith. Yeah, and uh, he probably, being in uniform, probably saw more of it. I don't, I don't yeah. think the concerns got voiced as much at, at, the, at the civilian level as maybe they did in the, in the military chain. That makes sense. One of the neat things you did was create the DIB pilot program. And that was in some ways a precedent for a lot of the sectoral work that's come since. 
What was your thinking on the Dib pilot? I mean, how did you get to it? Uh, just that. It, 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 I, it was intended as, as a precedent to show that you could, in fact, use uh, the resources of the government in partnership with private industry in an effective way. Because one of the characteristics, as you know well, of cyber is most of the assets are held by private sector entities. Uh, very different, I used the oceans before, very different than than the ocean uh, domain or even the space domain. So if you're going to be effective in the cyber domain, you have to work closely with the, with the private sector. So the, the DIB was in, intentionally structured so as to let us work our way through the legal, the policy, the political concerns, which are all valid and exist, and I thought could all be worked through if there was a commitment to do that. With our partners in the defense industry, we, we were able to get that commitment, and it was in their interest. I mean, they were they were losing intellectual property uh, uh, at a fairly high pace, so that they, they had a, a you know, certainly a, 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 their own interest in doing this, but they had a broader interest in in helping the department. And I think we did succeed, as you said, in showing that there was a model uh, that could work uh, in that regard. Um, How did you deal with the clearance problem when it came to information for the people in the DIB? You know, the, the bigger problem... It's still a problem. It's still a problem, but the bigger problem in many ways wasn't clearance for government information. It was protection of proprietary information for the companies. And I would say that was their biggest concern at the outset. One of the, I think one of the things we were able to deal with was to set up a structure where they could share information but without giving away proprietary information, without giving away the secret sauce that was letting them compete against uh, their other, uh, their colleagues in the industry. Uh, in terms of the the government information, the secret information, that it's the usual layered approach. You tell people what they need to know at the time they need to know it. You can, then there are examples, you get a little bit silly where you, you end up bringing CEOs in and you tell them about some great vulnerability, but they can't tell anybody. Well, that that doesn't really, and I can see how things can be that sensitive, but it doesn't get much done. If they, if a CEO goes back to his company and can't talk to his CIO about the vulnerability or get a team working on it, knowing about it is of modest value. How much did you do have to do with NSA sort of reorienting onto cyber? How big of an issue was that for you? Uh, they, they, that was a lot of that was self-generated. NSA, I think, saw very clearly. Mm -hmm that the developments in cyber had fundamentally changed their mission and and the tools by which they do the mission so that they were moving their investment priorities into cyber they were they were organizing around cyber even before uh, cyber command they were actually uh, offering resources to homeland security uh, not not always welcomed by homeland homeland security often saw NSA as a threat um, uh, but it, it, I, I, don't, I don't think it was the other way around. I don't think NSA saw uh, Homeland Security as a competitor. That was actually next on my list is what was it like working with DHS and getting DHS? You, you talked a lot about the need to protect critical infrastructure. That makes sense. And you said rightly that that was in many ways a DHS lead, if not the lead. What was it like working with them? Because I know they were – Insecure might be a little too strong, but not always welcoming. Well, I mean, it was. It was. I mean, 
DHS, I think, had a double problem. I mean, all of the cyber issues were new for everyone, and, and we were, and we still are. I feel like, I mean, it's a little bit like the you know 1940s, 50s in the nuclear era. You're feeling your way through, thinking your way through the problem, and uh, and so it, Homeland Security had that as well as being a very new department. So it, you know, it's it was at 17 organizations, kludged together. I mean, I think there's still you know, not surprisingly, figuring out how to how exactly to best uh, best organize. So I, I think that combination uh, made it ch- uh, challenging. I mean, my view was that the Homeland Security did have to be in charge of the protection of of critical infrastructure in the private sector. That wasn't logically a, a DoD uh, function, but that it could that you could reach a point where it would become a DoD function. So. You had to have a system by which the front and the initial uh, operations were Homeland Security lead, supported with DOD and NSA and Cyber Command resources, but definitely under a Homeland Security need. If the threat rose to the level of a national security threat, such that you know a, another nation-state actor was now trying to take our infrastructure down in a, in a massive way, that's now really an act of war. Now it is a DOD mission. And so you, at that point, you needed to be able to pivot so that now Homeland Security is no longer in the lead, DOD is in the lead. Uh, obviously, this is a little bit of a blurry line, but it, in my mind, the key here was to have Homeland Security and DOD, NSA, Cyber Command lashed up from the very beginning so you weren't trying to find exactly where that line was. You were lashed up from the beginning. As things changed, leadership changed, roles changed, uh, but the, the both both sides were were in from the beginning, and it was a partnership, a teaming arrangement, not a handoff, as you were, as it were. Why did you think DHS should be the people doing critical infrastructure? Because there's still folks at the Pentagon, uh, admittedly two or three layers down from where you were, who think this should be a DOD function. I, it, it, I think it, the closer you get to you know protecting borders. Uh, it, it, in the traditional way to law enforcement, uh, I think the further you get from the DoD mission, and I think you know the 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 types of you know smaller scale attacks, you know individual attacks. Uh, in my mind, that would that is what you set Homeland Security up to do. DoD is not equipped anymore. Uh, get controversial as to what's going on now with the borders, but you know DoD shouldn't be the one sent you know, to defend the borders, you know, that's the border patrol, that's ICE. Uh, if it's an invading army, which I don't think is what we're facing, then it's DOD. It, it's, it's, I think, a similar kind of calculation here on, on, on cyber. It's amazing that it's still sort of an issue for some people. Just as an aside, a lot of that has to do with the perception that DHS still isn't quite ready. And one of the things you hear is that, you know, look at uh, – you know, Goldwater Nichols and how long it took the department to get its act together. Do you think that's a good precedent? And people say department, 1947, you know, 1984, whenever Goldwater Nichols was, you're still wrestling with it. Is that the path DHS is on, do you think? I, hopefully it's a – But that's what I was alluding to with, the, you know, uh, DHS setting set up in the aftermath of, of 9-11. And, it, you know, in 2008 or 9, or 9, when I first started, they were, what, 7 – Seven years old, I think, at that point. I mean, that's that, that's not very old in cabinet 
age. Um, so I, I hopefully it doesn't take them, you know, four decades. The in, implication of your Goldwater Nichols comment, but it, it's they're, they're now not quite two decades in. I think things I think things have gotten better. I think a lot better. Uh, I think they are maturing uh, as an organization, and I think I think it is the right path. So I think we do need to, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't back the truck up and get rid of Homeland Security and try and distribute the functions. I think we do need to make this uh, make this structure work, and I think we're on the path to doing that. Any missed opportunities at DoD? What would you have done different, or is there something you'd wished you'd done, or overall? You know, you have good track record, but there's always that. I I think if if uh, I wished I pushed harder on a couple of things that are related. One is the the construct of deterrence. Uh, I I I think we need to alter our our constructs of deterrence for the cyber model. Some things apply, uh, some things don't. Uh, and I think in as we we think about it, we have a deterrent model that depends pretty heavily on the, being a nation state actor that has assets that you can hold at risk, uh, and and that that's the deterrent model that you use. I think as we progress, I don't think we're there yet. I think we're going to see more threats come out of less than nation state actors. Uh, rogue states, we are seeing in you know, Korea, obviously the Sony, North Korea with the Sony incident, Iran with the Aramco incident, and others. Rogue states are starting in. They're much harder to deter because we're already holding at risk as many of their assets as we can. It's hard to, it's hard to up too much more than we are. Uh, and then you get to terrorist groups which really don't have assets to hold at risk at all. So that, 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 that mutually assured destruction model that we used in the, in the Cold War doesn't really work at all uh, with them. You've got you know, to have better defenses. You've got to find other uh, avenues. So I, I think we haven't gotten as far down the deterrent model as I'd like. The other area, I think, is I think we should talk – and think more crisply about offensive operations. People aren't, uh, they're more comfortable than they were, but we were never very comfortable in the government talking about it. I, I think it contributes to the deterrent model. We are very, very good at this. Uh, our you know, adversaries at the government level are aware of that, but I think it, if, if we were uh, more open about it, it would suggest, one, we're more comfortable with it, more willing to use it in appropriate ways, and then maybe we wouldn't have to. That fits into where a lot of the discussion is now with Cyber Command and others, that we're not going to change the environment until we actually impose consequences on somebody. or And it could be anyone from Korea to the Russians. Or that we do something that is... Uh, sufficiently credible that people take us seriously. Do you think that's what you're talking about? That we need to actually? I think we do, and I, but I think it's. I also think it's hard. I don't think people are just missing it. it it's it's hard in in a couple of ways. One is particularly with nation state actors. We have other interests. So yeah, you could impose consequences in the cyber uh, realm, and now it affects your trade or your security or your alliance. So it's a very complex uh, uh, calculation. 
Um, although I think we got a little in the administration I served, I think we overthought it in some ways. We, you know, we needed, we were too many steps ahead. At some point, you just needed to act and let them react rather than try and think through uh, all of the other things. But the, the other thing that makes it hard is, in general, we are more dependent and vulnerable on cyber than any adversary you can think of. And so if if it, there's a tit for tat that's equal, we'll probably say, you know, if you if we go after somebody's financial sector and they come back after our financial sector, we've probably lost in that in that exchange because our financial sector is probably more uh, more dependent on that. That that gets back to I think our infrastructure defenses have to be more robust as part of part of this being able to act. We have to feel that we have some resiliency, some ability to withstand uh, uh, at least uh, opening salvos in this and that we can we can force somebody to back down before we suffer. What was your biggest challenge in DOD when you picked this up when it comes to cyber or related things? What was the thing that was the hardest to make progress on? Uh, two things. One, I mean, both outside. I mean, I think we made the made the most progress, it was the most straightforward within DOD, creating a command, setting up, as I said, all of the structures around that, the doctrine and the training and the force structure. I mean, that takes money. It takes will and emphasis. But DOD is a very hierarchical organization, and it, it moved in that direction. Harder was working with, with other government agencies, which have different interests and we have obviously no you know authority it's it's suasion uh, and there were it was early days or a lot of different views all I think you know sincerely felt I don't uh, people I don't think were were being petty but I I think trying to make progress through that pulling and hauling and deputies committees and talking about you know getting uh, getting through Justice Department legal reviews I can remember at one point we had um, for the, that DIB pilot you mentioned, it took months to get agreement on the banner you would have to put on people's computers. And I, was, I don't care, put whatever <laughs> you. But it, it was, the, the wording of that banner was very important to uh, apparently a lot of people. Um, the other challenge was the other one you mentioned is working with uh, private infrastructure, uh, private companies, the private sector. Uh, initially, I think there was a lot of concern with the DIB pilot, although I think we may we overcame that. Um, we also had another group called the Enduring Security Framework, which was broader than defense. In, uh, and there, I, I thought we had a lot of success there in terms of getting people to own the problems that we were. Uh, we were able to bring the NSA generally in and expose vulnerabilities, problems, and then collectively decide, okay, what's the best way to deal with it? Is it, you know, for the you know, industry to make changes in the, you know, the hardware or the software? Is it better, you know, is it government regulation? Is it some sort of program? And the, I found a very collaborative environment there. It was, it was not a very public group. Uh, and I think that helped. It wasn't uh, it wasn't so much classified as much as it just it was an inside group that tried to address the issues that we could find in our uh, uh, cybersecurity infrastructure. Well, since you brought it up, ESF had a lot of the big tech companies in it. Yes. And the peak of relationships between Silicon Valley and DOD might have occurred while you were at DOD. 
and most people say they're at the lowest point they've ever been now. What would you do to repair that? I mean, when you think about the tech companies, you saw Google reject working on Maven or their, because of their employee concerns. When I talk to people in the Valley, they say, you know, DOD tells me fill out these forms and we'll get back to you in three months. A Chinese investor will say, I can write the check now. What would you do to make the relationship stronger? And everyone has worked on it, but with decreasing success. Well, and I, but I think there's a reason uh, for that decreasing success, and it's Edward Snowden. Uh, I mean, I think uh, we had enormous cooperation and collaboration with Silicon Valley, and not just Silicon Valley, with you know the internet companies, the 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 whole structure, uh, all of that. Uh, was uh, made much more difficult by Snowden, uh, and I don't think we've recovered uh, from that. I think it makes it very hard if, for U.S. companies abroad if they if uh, other nations think that they're a, a, a part of a U.S. Uh, a national security establishment. Uh, it, it, it it way way overstates. Uh, the collaboration we had to say that, but it 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 it, uh, it it nevertheless, I think, is a reality we're dealing with in that international marketplace. And I think that's the. I, I don't think it was a pullback f for really for any other reason. It's I think you know international business reasons post Snowden have forced companies. Uh, the the I guess the Google thing is a little bit different. That that has to do with kind of uh, a more millennial. Um, issues about what's appropriate in terms of defense. But I, that, in my mind, isn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that post-Snowden. Do you see that a lot when you go overseas? I mean, do you get that from foreign audiences still, Snowden? I haven't personally, no. But I, I, I think if you're you know, a tech company trying to sell, uh, you still face it. Second to last question. Um, where do you think we are now? What are the biggest challenges for the nation moving ahead on this? I think the biggest challenge is to to think creatively enough about this. I think, you know, we it, it's it's a as I said, I think we're you know 1952 or something in the nuclear era. It, it's we're trying to figure out where the threats are going to come from. I I suggested that I I think that you know we're likely to see more threats come from outside the nation state area where I think we have fewer tools to deal with it. And I think we're moving up that ladder of, of uh, countries and groups who we have less and less interaction with and less and less ability to, to deter or negotiate with. At the same time, I think we're moving up a ladder of escalation that goes from you know exploitation to disruption to destruction. And most of what we're seeing now is in the first two. Uh, but we see uh, uh, there are there is you know Aramco or uh, the Iranian attempt in Aramco. There is the ability to destroy in the cyber world. We haven't seen it too often, uh, but it, it's there. And I expect it to get worse. And I expect the the actors to uh, be worse as well. And in my mind, the biggest threat we face is when those two ladders of escalations meet. Well, thank you. This Thanks, was tremendous. Thanks very much, Jim. This was Thanks. great. Thanks for listening to Cyber From The Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber From The Start.